Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Joining me today is Alex Long, who is a program associate at the Science and Technology Innovation Program here at the Woodrow Wilson Center and somewhat of an office neighbor of mine right around the corner. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Long-time listener. So you are, oh, long-time listener. Long-time long listener. Long-time. We've been also, on 10 months, so yes. this is a long time. <laughs> this is uh, uh, the millennial generation's view of time. So <laughs> you, kind in your background and what makes you able to speak about this, you uh, have studied biology and you were on your way to medical school, right? And decided, no, this is not for me. I want to do policy instead. Yeah. So I, like many seniors in undergrad who were pre-med, decided this is not the route for me. I love policy. So then I ended up going to Georgetown to study biomedical policy and advocacy, which led me into the intricacies of biomedical policy within the U.S. federal government. And then ever since I came to the Wilson Center, it's much more international focused and with a global scope. So this does give you the opportunity as almost Dr. Alex Long to talk to, <laughs> to talk to us about this coronavirus, right? Right. That, I'm in no means a public health professional. <laughs> I want to make that clear. You or play a doctor, one on a podcast. But, <laughs> but I know um, I study the field and I understand many of the intricacies that's going on right now with coronavirus, which is elucidating it. Well, of course, we make light of this, uh, but certainly you are qualified to talk about this. And, you know, we do take this seriously at the Wilson Center. And I think that, you know, within kind of all that we do, I think what is fascinating about how the Wilson Center operates is we have so much expertise within our regional programs and kind of these special projects like the Science and Technology Innovation Program that can sort of just bring all of these threads together when something like this happens. So when we talk about coronavirus, what makes this particular disease unique? So I think that what makes it different than what we've seen is because it's presenting almost like two different very important diseases that we've been tracking, one being SARS and one being the flu. So SARS is also a coronavirus. This coronavirus specifically is called COVID-19, coronavirus disease 19, 2019, when it came about. So It looks like SARS in its viral structure, but the one thing that is good about SARS is that it was not very transmissible. So it was pretty contained and not many people were infected. But then the other side of that is the flu is obviously very transmissible. It happens every year. It's on the minds of everyone. Did you get your vaccine? And coronavirus is spreading like the flu, but has actions like SARS. So it's kind of in this go-between space where... People are being infected at rates similar to the flu, but the fatality rate is not SARS level because that was 10%, but is higher than the flu, which is 2 to 3% fatality rate, and the flu is 0.1% in a very bad year. And I think that it's really important to say this is why it's becoming so urgent. So when I, I would like to caveat the fatality rate or the case fatality rate by saying We don't know the full extent of everyone who has been infected, and we're still figuring that out because there are mild cases where people are just staying home because they think they have a regular cold or a regular uh, flu where they'll just socially isolate themselves and get better on their own. So those are cases that aren't being tracked uh, within that denominator that would then make up the case fatality rate of deaths over amount diagnosed. 
that said, uh, this virus is just beginning. Mm -hmm. So if it were to reach peak levels, we don't know what that looks like yet. So I guess just in a sense, what is the difference then between that and the flu? Well, other than the, and based off the current numbers, and I feel like it's important to actually say what time it is right now, because it's 1148. 1148 on Thursday. On Thursday, (laughs) Thursday, February the 27th. So yeah, that's the time of recording. We'll have this out as soon as possible. But you're right. When we have a a, a breaking, news is always breaking. It's never whole. It's always breaking. And this is, of course, a a developing story. So this could be different by the time people hear it. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that the most important difference between the flu and coronavirus is the current rate, um, the current fatality rate. Because that 2% versus 0.1% is huge, humongous. And um, the other confounding factor that we're finding ourselves in, especially with messaging, because I think when you talk to public health officials or when you watch the news and listen to them speak, uncertainty is the number one uh, thing that needs to be communicated to both tell the public to be alert and communicate urgency, but not be alarmist. Mm -hmm. Because if you're creating alarm, then that can create some chaos within the community. Right. And I'm trying to temper those things by saying these statements, by saying 2% versus 0.1%. Right. But the other difference between the flu and coronavirus is we understand the flu. Mm -hmm. The flu, we have it every year. We have the mechanisms in place. We have shots in every CVS. We understand the flu and right. how it works. What we don't understand is coronavirus. A month ago, we didn't realize just how rapidly this would spread. We were all worried about that, but we really did not know that it would be able to have the rate of transmission which it's having right now. Uh, this is talked about a lot in the news as the r not number. r not meaning how many people one person can infect if they are already infected. Um, like the largest are not known is measles, which is between, I think, 14 and 16. Um, and coronavirus, during the early stages of our understanding of it, people were estimating between two and four. And now I've heard numbers as big as two and six. Hmm. Uh, so that's all to say that the uncertainty is what makes this virus more important for us to be vigilant for once it uh, has community spread in the United States. So that, that is an interesting point. So we know about the flu, but this, since it is a new case, we just we just have not had the chance to study it. We don't know how it mutates. We don't know how it right. who it infects and how easily transmissible it is. So those are all very interesting points. I do take your point very well that a, a an official who has to then communicate this to the public, as we've seen officials in our government do... Right. They have to walk an extremely fine line. And I think that part of the, what I have seen in when I hear some of our officials speak on TV, I hear a lot of these measured statements like you're like you're telling us yeah. we are uncertain. We need to watch this. We need to be careful and vigilant on the media. On the other hand, they it feels like they're having a different conversation. They seem to be talking far more ahead of where the officials are talking as if to try to hype the situation. And what we had with the SARS epidemic, uh, we had a lot of people kind of get out in front and then nothing happened. And then people, well, not nothing, but it didn't turn out like a lot of people thought it would. Right. And then people say, well, they they overreacted. Uh, 
how much of that kind of affects a public health response to the next disease? Yeah, so it's always tricky to walk that line because you never want to seem like you were messaging too much and causing too much fear. But I think that the prevailing message right now is this is no joke. Um, and if, let's say, in the next couple months, it is not as bad as we warned, that's actually good news. So even though it may seem alarmist right now, it's better to have these systems in place and have everyone in the U.S. at least understand what they should be doing as precautions because we want to prepare. This is all about preparation and prevention, and I understand the dichotomy between saying too much now and then under-delivering and people then having mistrust in the public health systems, but as long as pundits and officials are able to get out there and say that there is this uncertainty and communicate that to the best degree possible. And as long as the public is looking more to the CDC, their local and state health officials, and less to talking heads, so to speak, or at least people who are extrapolating on the news and just inserting their opinions, then I think people will understand, okay, the reason why I know that there might be school closures is because if coronavirus is able to have community spread in a large metropolitan area, we're going to do this thing to fight this disease together. It's about engendering a public call for action um, without it being a top-down, like, top-down authoritarian isolation. Being able to message to the public that this is something that's on the edge and not to be worried when we're asking you to buy like frozen vegetables or buy non-perishable goods it's to contain this virus it's, it's not preparing the public for what may happen exactly. and if it doesn't happen then we're more prepared for the next time exactly because you'll know what this looks like mm. so let's talk about the the next time mm -hmm. what what do we know about where this came from and how it is how it's started and what what happens in the future right so i think one of the most unprecedented things about this virus and how it's been consumed by the public consciousness is the open data usage. Uh, China was very quick to sequence the genome, uh, I think it was almost 10 days after it was first isolated, and then being able to put that genome onto a public database that scientists the world over were able to analyze and basically figure out where it came from. So in that figuring out where it came from, I'm sure many of your listeners know that uh, the word bats has been said. There's a, a lot, lot of talk about bat soup about and bats. live bats in markets. And there's also a, another animal that are just similar to an anteater or an yes. or a, a Yeah, which has the very armadillo shelling on yeah. the back yeah. um, because it's the, I think it is one of the most highly uh, traded uh, on the For black like market. For like a traditional medicine. Yes, and then also, right, um, within wildlife markets. Uh, so that is a an example of a zoonotic event. And to explain what zoonotic event is, that is where a disease transfers from animals to humans or vice versa. So what is thought to have happened uh, is the host or the root of this disease came from a virus that was circulating within the bat populations, which happens. Um, bats have diseases just like humans have diseases. Bats actually have a lot of coronavirus um, diseases because, to be clear, coronavirus is actually just a family mm -hmm. of viruses, and it just talks about the structure. 
Um, and then there are certain strains. So this is COVID-19. Um, and within the bat populations, these viruses circulate. And every once in a while, a virus can mutate in a certain way that allows it to jump between species. Now, there's currently speculation on whether it went from bats to humans or bats to an intermediate host to humans. Hmm. When they sequence the genome, like I mentioned earlier, uh, they're able to isolate the RNA from the virus. And 96%, uh, based on the last study that I saw, 96% was bat genome, which would indicate that this came from bats. So operating under that logic, um, regardless if there's an intermediate host, um, which would have potentially been an animal within a wildlife market, um, but that's currently unconfirmed, these types of events are going to happen more and more and more as we start living closer to uh, animals. And that is based on climate change, globalization, and overpopulation. People have more interactions with animals than previously just based on space. And that is a... And also, not to mention the stressors of environmental change and environmental damage to the immune systems of uh, animals that would potentially give us these diseases. So other diseases that operate like uh, COVID-19 would be SARS, uh, which came from a cat, uh, civet cat, MERS, which comes from camels, uh, flu, which can come from pigs or birds, hence swine or avian flu. Mm -hmm. So these viruses we're actually very familiar with, but right now is a good time to be talking about the implications of how we're transferring disease from the animal to humans, humans to animals, and how the environment impacts that. And that ideology is called One Health. It's a One Health framework. Mm -hmm. And that's understanding that no disease can be monitored in a vacuum. It's a triad of human, and animal, and environmental health. Hmm. Well, interesting take. And appreciate you coming on to explain some of this as yeah. we kind of use, go, we're going to do a, a walk through a lot of different expertise that we have here at the Wilson Center. We thought it'd be a good idea to start with you to give us an idea of what this is. So thanks awesome. so much. Thank you for having me. We're going to turn now to Ray Zong, who is a program associate at the Kissinger Institute for China in the U.S. here at the Wilson Center. I wanted to have you come on because uh, I've learned that you have some personal connection to the area where this uh, all started to take place and where we first started to notice the coronavirus outbreak. So tell us a little bit about that background that you have. So I was born in Wuhan, grew up there until elementary school age, and visited a lot of my close relatives there. But I think how this puts the coronavirus outbreak into perspective is that there are a lot of really specific details that people who may or may not have heard of Wuhan sort of miss out as they try to analyze the spread of the disease. And are, are those are the, the societal things that you would know about because you've lived there and you, you, you know what Chinese society is like. That's right. So Wuhan is uh, the provincial capital of Hubei province. So effectively the Midwest of China. And it's a pretty large city, about 11 million people and houses a lot of different universities in central China. And what's happened in the wake of the outbreak is that even though Wuhan has a pretty good hospital system for a city and its economy, its size, 
we're seeing the outbreak push that health system to its limits. There are staffing shortages. There are supply shortages, particularly for medical personnel. And there are staffers effectively being overworked, which really taxes their immune systems. My aunt, who is working in Wuhan's Zhongnan hospital system, has mostly been staying put because she is in her 50s, but her younger colleagues who are maybe in their 20s, 30s, are working very, very long shifts. We've heard a lot about what the Chinese have kind of imposed in order to try to contain this outbreak. Um, people not going to work, uh, or you know, as you see, I guess, in the hospital setting, they're over, maybe being overworked. Um, but what is it doing to the economy and what's it doing to the society that, you know, that you're seeing? Well, work shutdowns are expected to hit China's economy pretty hard. But on the societal level, you still have people that are working during this time because with people inside, there has to be a supply route set up so that people can continue to get food or other necessities like prescription medication or other daily needs items. So a lot of delivery drivers and couriers are still out there and likely less well supplied than medical personnel. And it's it's generally not considered a very prestigious or high paying job. And often these informal economy workers or gig economy workers within China aren't necessarily getting the protections that they might need. There's been some excellent reporting on how they've been surviving and helping each other, usually through fellow couriers and delivery drivers, less so than from corporate headquarters who are all sitting pretty in their houses teleworking. Uh, well, I guess let's, let's start with a more basic question. What is the culture of teleworking in China? Well, within China, teleworking works pretty similarly to how it works in the United States. You log on to a computer, you complete your tasks, you answer emails, or in China's case, you also answer WeChat messages from your team or your supervisor. Education is a little bit different in that some video learning experiences have been experiencing difficulties because of some of the content getting censored mm. um, that teachers weren't expecting to get censored and video learning is not entirely accessible to all Chinese students. So when you talk about the censorship that they were seeing from the video learning, mm -hmm. is that because by putting it on video, it gave the authorities more of a window into what they would have been teaching in the classroom anyway? They might not have been censored in the classroom because they didn't have a monitor there at that moment, but putting it on video gives that opportunity to the government. I think it's more poor filtering. Like, for example, biology classes might trip up certain filters for graphic content 
or um, other types of material that is flagged as sensitive but may not actually be sensitive and so so it's like an ai it's it's a it's a it's a technical bug and not necessarily a political feature although there are plenty of political features to be found during the covid19 outbreak i learned today that the chinese government is effectively publishing a official history of how they handled the COVID-19 outbreak to be translated into five languages and the fact that they always want a definitive narrative to how they're handling certain types of problems that pop up in China, I think is going to be one of the biggest political questions that myself and my colleagues in China analysis are going to be looking at this year. Hmm. Well, like any you know, communist government worth its salt, there has to be an official history. Mm-hmm. There's a there's definitely a drive to figure out where Xi Jinping thought fits into the bigger picture of how China's handling the COVID nineteen. So, on this larger question of this you know, authoritarian style government being able to handle this kind of outbreak. We've we've heard some people say, well, say what you will about the Chinese government, but as an authoritarian system, they're able to take the measures that need to be taken in order to really work on this. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, they built a hospital in 10 days, but they couldn't put the doctors and nurses needed to fill it through school in 10 days. And so this definitely shows us some of the infrastructure construction strengths of China's model, but the slow down and inefficiencies also are demonstrated in the case of COVID-19. For example, it was known that Xi Jinping knew of a possible problem as early as January 7th. Wuhan's Local authorities also knew of the information early on, but didn't necessarily feel that it was pertinent to pass it on for policy planning purposes. And so the question of how politics speeds up or slows down certain decisions that get made within China is probably a factor in both how the various issues have been solved, but also raise a lot of questions about why weren't they solved sooner. So what do you think the world has learned about China from this? I would say that there's actually a lot the world has to learn from China from this incident, because what this what COVID-19 reveals is that preparation for this type of viral outbreak really, really depends on factors like household wealth. My family is able to keep buying resources because my grandparents have a good pension plan and my aunt has a lot of connections as a doctor. That's not necessarily true for every single family. And as it spreads overseas, how well people are able to get resources and effectively self-quarantine or 
get information really, really depends on their their household's financial, educational, and other factors. And so I think this is actually something that China is teaching the rest of the world. Maybe not overtly, but it's it's a lesson all the same. Well, thank you, Ray, for joining us. This has been, I think, illuminating. One, because you have this this personal connection to the region, uh, but also with what you've been studying. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. We'll turn now to some of the economic impacts of the coronavirus, and I am joined by Shihoko Goto, who is the Deputy Director for Geoeconomics at the Asia Program. Thank you for coming back, because you were on our program to do the trade podcast, so thank you for joining us again. Yeah, this is great. Um, it's, it's all kind of related, though, isn't it? It sure is. We'll get into that. I guess start with the how, does, how is the current coronavirus outbreak affecting the global supply chain? Right. Well, let's make it even bigger than that and okay. say, okay, well, um, what has market reaction to this been? Right. We've seen pandemics and epidemics in the past. We've seen you know, SARS. We've seen Ebola. It's never really had this big of an impact on the global economy. But And we had initially thought that even this outbreak in China would not have as big an impact on the financial market as it has to date. So all of the gains to, of 2020 have really been wiped up. And it's really when it hit Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to say suddenly, that this suddenly is... Suddenly everybody... Right, can. right. So until, until, it, until it went to Italy and Iran and no one knows why it went, right? No right. one knows who patient zero is in these two countries. Um, it was seen as, okay... This is a China problem. China is dealing with it. This is going to hit the Chinese economy. Um, and it will hit Chinese consumer spending. This is terrible for companies that are closely integrated with China. Um, what does this mean for China's longer-term trajectory? It will hurt GDP in the first quarter. It'll probably hurt it in the second quarter. Will it, like, you know, how, what kind of impact will it have on the third and the fourth? But now it's kind of like, okay, it's not just being contained in China. There are other countries that are being impacted, and then we have public policy that is responding to it, right? So to take, not just leave it to China to contain it, but also contain it within the, the respective countries' borders as well. And so the market reaction has been to like sell in panic. Of course, the key thing to remember in all of this is financial markets are not... They're not a real indicator as such. They reflect sentiment, and it's not really reality. But the reality is that this is no longer just about a China consumer spending issue. It really will hurt the Chinese economy in, in a much uh, longer term beyond like a, a quarterly issue. Right, because people aren't going to work. Right, people aren't going to work, and this... this Right. And, and then going back to your issue about the global supply chain, uh, the manufacturing plants are even those that have started operating. They're not operating at 100 percent capacity. Um, a lot of com foreign companies that are operating in China have decided either to keep their operation at a minimum level or not even restart. So this is having an impact. Uh, but it, it's, it goes far beyond that. Now that we've had these travel restrictions, um, that may potentially expand to beyond China. 
there's also a lot of um, self-imposed uh, quarantine or reluctance to travel. Um, airlines, U.S. airline business to Asia has dropped by about 75% over the last couple of weeks. So people don't want to go. Um, and, and so we are seeing that direct impact into the United States and other countries that go far beyond the obvious, the, the manufacturing side. So, so that's the big concern. But here's the other thing. The longer this goes on, the longer this kind of fear persists, will it have a longer term um, impact on changing the way companies do business? So we've already seen those who um, are more of an anti-globalist, America first supporting type of people would say, okay, this really justifies our position to say we shouldn't be so dependent on foreign sources of manufacturing and distribution, that we should bring back those manufacturing plants back to the United States, because being dependent overseas makes us vulnerable even to pandemics, and uh, not just from an economic perspective, but also from a health perspective as well. And that really resonates with people. But that really changes. I mean, if, if investors, manufacturers actually start acting on that fear or concern, then that really will shift the economic landscape. I don't think we're there yet. And I think um, that probably won't um, change the way companies actually operate. And certainly it won't interrupt their foreign direct investment strategy in the longer term. But it is something to bear in mind. Well, this is interesting, as you mentioned, you know, how businesses change and adapt to situations. I'm reminded, going back to our conversations that we did for the, the trade series that we did, everyone should listen if they haven't yet, but the trade series uh, that we did discussed the, the tariffs that have been in place on steel and aluminum that remain in place even in phase one of the trade deal and how companies are adjusting to that and moving operations in some cases right. to adjust to that. Right. And now you throw coronavirus on top of that. Yeah. They're really, I mean, this really could cause some major shifts yeah, in yeah, 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 the yeah. people dealing in Asia. Yeah. So initially the reaction was, okay, well, what does this mean for the U.S.-China phase one trade deal, right? Mm -hmm. So China has committed to buying a, a, a boatload of American products, but um, there had always been some skepticism as to to what extent China could meet those needs, um, that, that promise, that numerical target. And now um, it's unlikely, if, if China was probably not able to meet those numerical targets at that time when phase one was signed, now with, with its own domestic economy um, on very shaky ground at the moment, it really will not be able to meet those, those targets. But I think the United States will be more accepting. I mean, these are very exceptional circumstances. So well, they and the Chinese always left themselves room. Yes, to absolutely. Not by the amount of goods that they said absolutely. that they were going. Absolutely. They always said, "We'll do it as the market allows." Right. And I, I think the Chinese probably don't have to fear about uh, retaliatory action by the United States simply because it's not meeting those target numbers. Has a great excuse now. Yeah, it has a really 
totally understandable excuse right now. Uh, but then this whole then we come to this whole issue about you know America and managed trade and bilateral relations. Um, how is this going to move forward? Are we going to see a phase two deal? If there was no phase, if there was a lot of skepticism about phase two until long after the U.S. presidential elections, now that has only been extended even further because you're not going to be seeing the actual results from phase one for quite a long time. And China is going to have to really scramble to really keep its economy um, running. And there has been like talk about, oh, China might release GDP figures that keep the corona impact off the books. But that's totally useless, right? That's not, what does that measure? Nothing, because that doesn't really measure the real economy at all. Um, it'll be interesting, though, um, U.S. reaction to all of this. Right now, um, there is a lot of uncertainty. It's certainly in the headlines. But what happens if this panic continues? What happens when there are, you know, we see actual incidents increasing in the United States? Uh, what happens um, when the United States um, decides to take Know, f finds that there is panic in its own borders, right? There could be a silver lining in all of this, too. Um, there could be a readjustment of how people work, right? There's a lot of skepticism in some quarters about the effectiveness of tele telecommuting. Now it will be highly encouraged. Um, there will be a lot of reassessment about, you know, distribution of goods and services. It, it could be a totally big boon to online uh, shopping. You know, there could be renewed faith and interest in the health care sector. Um, there, this could actually be a really good thing for the U.S. economy um, to kind of re-jigger uh, itself. But what my, you laid out there just sounds like we're going to be isolating ourselves. No, well, I mean... <laughs> We're now talking about like isolating ourselves, right? Being prepared uh, for what could happen. Um, but I think the real test of this is there's a lot of global um, concern about you know U.S. values and U.S. leadership. What can America do to take on this role as the to take on the moral high ground, to take on issues um, that have no national boundaries, like human rights, like environment, all of these things. And a lot of countries have been disappointed with U.S. leadership. If America does this right, and it provides the kind of um, stability to reassure financial markets, to reassure its people, to ensure that even if corona does spread, that it is um, contained, that it is able to provide the services that people need, then it could really go up in the eyes of the world as well. So this could be an opportunity for America to shine. Well, thank you, Shioko. That's a very good note to end this on, I think. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that this has been an illuminating look at this coronavirus outbreak and its impacts. We wish all the public health officials all over the world the very best as they work to combat this virus. And until next time, thank you for listening to Need to Know. <laughs>